Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we remember our fallen on Remembrance Day with a member of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. Is the world view changing on China as Biden is elected into the U.S. presidency? And as Trump is on his way out, should social media and cable news go with him? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Today is the day we remember those who sacrificed their lives so we could live ours in freedom and peace. Thank you. Let's learn from our experience and unite in their honor. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 1210 on Remembrance Day. I'm Scott Thompson. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show. What a beautiful day. Uh, only thing missing is all of us at the Cenotaph and, uh, and, and joining in this memorial. Uh, obviously can't due to COVID-19. But boy, uh, the spirit is there and you can feel it. Uh, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Uh, we'll uh, we'll, of course, back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Lots of ways to do that through Facebook and Twitter. You can also send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open. Uh, it was interesting. I was on uh, Facebook this morning, and I all of a sudden saw this picture pop up of uh, myself and Ron Foxcroft at, this, at the radio station in, like, 2014. And Ron was dressed in his uh, honorary uh, Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders uh, 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 uniform and such. And uh, I saw the picture today and I said, my goodness, of course, we have to have Ron Foxcroft on and talk about this day. So Ron is with us, uh, Fox 40 Fluke Transport. But uh, today, uh, more notably, is honorary colonel with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders and is with us now. Ron, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, doing very well in spite of everything, uh, Scott. But first things first, um, uh, as uh, I want to tribute your son on behalf of all your listeners, that was an amazing intro. And, you know, I always say um, things are more than a slogan. We should live a slogan like lest we forget is more than a slogan. It's something we, we should live. And your son said something during the intro that is impactful. United in their honor. And I think that that is particularly important. Kudos to your son on behalf of all your listeners, because united in their honor, we as Canadians on November the 11th, the 11th month, 11th day, 11th hour, proudly are united. It's one thing about being Canadian that I'm so proud of. On November the 11th, we are united. And with all the Trials and tribulation, tribulations uh, down south where obviously perhaps we could say they're not united. We are united as Canadians, and I just want to applaud your son for saying what he said in the introduction, particularly today on November the 11th. Well, I will certainly pass that along to him, and, and thank you for that. You know, it was interesting in talking to him yesterday, and it, it, I don't even know how it came up, but it did, and you could tell that they are involved at school, that in, in, in perhaps more so than they did in our day, although you know, that's not, not necessarily the case, because I remember the day when we used to have it off. 
Um, but that being said, they clearly still talk about it. They still teach it. They still promote it. And you could see in his face that uh, it was making an impact on him. And that's great to see for a younger generation, isn't it? It is, Scott, and and uh, I I think the schools are doing a, an excellent job because today is a day of remembrance. It's also very important. It's a day of respect. And somebody once said, and this made uh, quite an impression on me. Remember, there's no unwounded soldiers, and what that means, Scott, is you know we we think of veterans uh, of being soldiers that are of advanced age. Well, not so. Not necessarily so. Now we have veterans returning from active duty that are extremely young. They're in their late 20s, uh, mid-30s, and so on. And someone said there's no unwounded soldiers. And what that means, and I think the schools are doing a good job teaching this, uh, soldiers return from battle with... um, mental health challenges, uh, physical challenges, and, and of course, what we know uh, of death. So um, uh, people like your children and, and other children, they're doing a very good job teaching the respect, the day of remembrance, which is a day of respect. You know, it's interesting, too, that uh, you you talked about mental health issues and and post-traumatic stress disorder and such. And, you know, back in the day when these soldiers came home, for example, from World War II, you just did not talk about this stuff. And uh, now, as a society, we at least can look inward and and ask ourselves, my goodness, what would it have been like to have experienced, to have seen and experienced what they have? And, and, And I think that really resonates today it does scott and you know um we often talk about uh heroes heroes in in different categories you know the arts uh, music uh, uh sport and so on the real heroes are the soldiers the the soldiers that uh, uh stand up represent their country they're the real heroes and they show the real courage and and you know scott i'm a great believer uh, being an Argyle, and I've learned so much being a proud Argyle, of course, we got to visit the Queen and, and learn more about uh, how she feels about uh, Canadian soldiers. But soldiers, courage is contagious, Scott. When a soldier stands tall, others follow. And I think that's really important that we teach our, our young students and children that when a soldier stands tall, Others will follow, and that's real, that's uh, courageous, and that's a real hero. Talk about, me, and I know we've discussed this before, but remind the listeners, talk about meeting the Queen and what and, and her feeling towards the Argyles, her closeness to this regiment. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you asked, Scott, because um, when, when I met the Queen and left the Queen, I never felt more proud to be a Canadian, and and you remember the circumstances, and your listeners will remember the yeah. circumstances. We lost uh, Corporal Nathan Cirillo, uh tragically in 2014, and uh, I was the honorary colonel, and the, the Queen is our colonel-in-chief, and she invited uh, Colonel Hatfield, our amazing uh, commander, uh, CO, commanding officer, and, and Colonel uh, Rick Kennedy to her apartment as her colonel-in-chief to express condolences. 
And I remember in that meeting, obviously, uh, the first thing that she shared with us is how proud she was to be the colonel-in-chief of the Argyle Regiment from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Mm. That really uh, hit the heart hard. It it hit our hearts hard, and, and, you know, it really hit us as Canadians. But she said one thing, Scott. I'm not sure if I've ever shared this with you or your listeners. She said, uh, I understand the Argyles. I'm very proud to be the colonel-in-chief, but the best reserve soldiers in the world are Canadians. Wow. And that came from Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth. Well, Scott, you know, you're standing there in her apartment. You're representing Canada. You're representing the Argyle Regiment from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth, just said the best reserve soldiers in the world are Canadians. And I'll tell you, Scott, that hit us hard in a in a really good way and we should never ever forget that our reservists our soldiers they're brave they're courageous they're battle ready and they're ready to put their lives on the line to defend their country so the rest of us can have the freedom that we enjoy. So uh, that's something, Scott, about that visit. Uh, we'll, we'll never forget, Colonel Hatfield, Colonel Kennedy, myself, we'll never forget the Queen saying, who are the best reserve soldiers in the world? You know, it's also interesting, and you have to think with every Hamiltonian, it resonates even more on Remembrance Day when you bring up Corporal Nathan Cirillo and him losing his life uh, while standing on guard in in Ottawa. That I think that, sh- that that means something extra special to Hamiltonians on this day, doesn't it? It does, and it does, Scott. If you recall, it was the largest, if I'm not mistaken, it was the largest military funeral in the history of Canada, and everybody in Canada united because um, Corporal Cirillo was one of us, and of course his family, his uh, amazing mother, at the time his son Marcus was four years old, how could we forget that, his two sisters, and... um, I, I believe Hamiltonians, you know, Hamiltonians are the most aggressively caring people in Canada. And they adopted the Cirillo family. And, and uh, courageously, the Cirillo family allowed us as a city and as a country to, they, they shared their moments with, with Canada, their grief. And, and that took a lot of courage, uh, Scott. Who could we ever forget? But Hamilton, Hamilton people are aggressively friendly, aggressively caring, and aggressively generous. <laughs> That's a great description. Um, it is. Obvious, obviously, this this uh, Remembrance Day different because of the pandemic, because of COVID-19. Do we lose something here, Ron? Are you concerned that we'll miss a year and, 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 and won't remember next year? Or does this reinforce everything? Now that we've had to live life smaller, simpler, it's things like this that actually mean something. Scott, you said something very, very important. If there's something good about this pandemic... I think we've slowed down 
life is very fast. Life sometimes is too fast. And if there's a good thing, and, you know, we always have to look at the positive, if there's a good thing, we have slowed life down and we have shown respect to things like this. November the 11th Remembrance Day is something very, very important. I want to give kudos to 900 CHML. I think they've done a wonderful job in the build-up to Remembrance Day to help us remember, help us show respect, help us respect what's really important in life. And um, I, I know things are different, and I know you and I and Bill Kelly and Roy Green have always been down at Gore Park to show our respect on Remembrance Day. But, Scott, you you said it best. I think this has been more impactful because we've taken what may be a life that had been moving too fast, and we've reeled it in, slowed it down, and now I think we're showing respect to things in life that are really important, and that's remembering our soldiers, respecting our family, and respecting our neighbors. Uh, obviously, Ron, you, you've been around the, the planet a couple of times. Do you think we are different? We will be different post-pandemic. You know, obviously, you're a businessman. Business, life moving fast. Do you think we've learned something here in all of this? Oh, I really think we have, Scott. I think we've taken time to uh, analyze ourselves, analyze our friends, analyze our neighbors, um, I'm, I'm, you know, a, a pandemic is not a good thing. Obviously, it's not a good thing, but we have to extract some things out of this. And um, I, I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, like the very simple things in life, Scott, like have you noticed that your neighbors now are spending more family time, more, more yeah. time with people that are important? You see families out there walking in the park. Mm. I go to the Royal Botanical Gardens. And which is a treasure, which is a jewel, kind of like things in Hamilton, like Dundurn Park. We're probably mm. experiencing and respecting things like Dundurn Park, the art gallery, and things like that. So, no, I, I really think, Scott, that um, uh, uh, post-COVID, uh, we're going to be we're going to be better. As Canadians, we're going to show more respect, and I think we're going to um, respect the things that are really important in life. Number one, remembering our soldiers, remembering our veterans, but remembering our neighbors and our family and respecting them. What and last question here, and I'll let you go. What what message do you have? And we've touched on this a bit for for the younger generation who are, uh, you, you know, we we've talked about this crisis before, and I've I've I've, I've characterized it as uh, the first crisis of a privileged generation. And, you know, you think about what my kids are going through and what families are going through and people who have lost work or, or trying to make ends meet or kids who can't go to school or university or whatever. And, you know, I think of my mother, especially on days like on Remembrance Day, uh, who was an immigrant and, and was a child during the war, running to bomb shelters uh, as a six, seven, eight year old. And I'm watching the kids now. And, you know, th- th- there's a lot of 
obviously anxiety and fear over what's coming. And, you know, I often use my mother as an example for my kids and say, you know, we can go through this. This is just like a war, except, you know, uh, unfor- you know fortunately, there's no bombing and, and invasions and such, but it still requires that same discipline and that same, uh, that, that same toughness, for lack of a better word, to get through this. What message do you have for the younger generation who maybe hasn't experienced something like this? First things first, Scott, great comments. And, um, you know, you, uh, I'm advanced in age. Uh, I'm older than you. But you and I, have uh, we've um, probably had to witness uh, many things, you know, like, for example, we've seen uh, a couple of, uh, not depressions, but uh, repressions in the, in the business world and so on and so on. But, you know, Scott, a message to the younger people. You're judged on how you handle adversity. And I've noticed, uh, let's, let's, for example, your kids that do the intro are, are now living through a pandemic that you and I have never had to live through. Mm-hmm. And we're going to judge them on how they handle adversity. And I think that the students, the youth, and people like that, families are handling this thing very, very well. It's a great, great challenge. But we're going to come out of this on the other side conclusion we're going to be better people we're going to be more respectful people and we're going to be tremendously respectful of the freedom that we enjoy because we have managed to get through this terrible adversity i honestly believe they are the next great generation i really believe there's tomorrow's leaders and we're growing them right now scott and and you know what we're going to look back on this 10 years from now and just say you know our kids handled this uh, pandemic. They handled it well. They've come over this adversity, and this is why they're the great leaders. And, and Scott, we got to show respect to our great leaders of tomorrow. That's our youth. Ron Foxcroft has been with us, Fox 40 Fluke Transport, and, of course, uh, was an honorary colonel with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, hence his appearance today. Ron, as always, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for the words of inspiration. Uh, Boy, oh, boy, you certainly cannot count the amount of people who you've inspired over the years. So thanks so much for the time, and be well. Thanks, Scott. Always a pleasure to talk to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, interesting uh, as uh, the, the two Michaels, uh, Michael Kovrick and Spaver, uh, spend over 700 days in a Chinese jail. Uh, the prime minister uh, speaking out again in the last 24 hours saying that uh, Canada will not be swayed. Uh, by what China is trying to do. All at the same time, uh, Hong Kong's pro-democracy lawmakers uh, have resigned in mass. And also, CSIS warning uh, Canadians about China's Operation Fox Hunt, which is targeting Canada's Chinese community. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. And he is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good to hear from you, Scott. So, uh, first of all, let's start with Hong Kong. What has happened recently there in regard to uh, the pro-democracy movement and, and China's trying to rein that in? Well, they have the Legislative Council in Hong Kong, which is their um, local parliament. And it's not a freely elected body, but a portion of the representatives in the Legislative Council are, are um, elected by the people at large, and those people are, of course, supporters of freedom and democracy. 
so the Chinese government, in gross violation of the basic law that governs uh, relations between Beijing and Hong Kong, uh, decided to arbitrarily remove four of the 19 pro-democracy um, representatives in the Legislative Council. It's a minority of the total number of seats, but, you know, they, they, they speak up and they object to arbitrary measures on the part of the government and make it uncomfortable for the regime to engage in, in legislation which is hostile to the interests of ordinary people. Anyway, four of them were told that they could no longer serve. It's unclear the basis, but, you know, that they are not loyal to Beijing or that they are suspected of supporting Hong Kong independence or they've had uh, dealings with foreign powers designed to foment support for Hong Kong. Anyway, four of them were turfed. As a consequence, the other 15 will be um, formally resigning uh, tomorrow. And that will mean that there will be no uh, pro-democracy voice left within the Legislative Council of Hong Kong. So it really is the end of any pretense that the political institutions in Hong Kong in any way represent the interests of ordinary Hong Kong people. That was my next question, uh, Charles. Is that the end of it? Is that the end of any sort of democracy movement or, or guidelines of any way or, or policing? Well, you know, the the um, democracy, uh, pro-democracy legislators hope to continue to speak out, but basically under the national security law, uh, people who speak out uh, freely are now subject to arrest and possible transportation to the People's Republic of China for treatment that would be comparable to, you know, what you're referring to with regard to Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Staver. So I think that this is just another uh, nail in the coffin of freedom and democracy in Hong Kong, um, and that Hong Kong becomes like other Chinese cities under the domination of the authoritarian um, Chinese Communist Party. So uh, I'm sorry to say that uh, Hong Kong, as we know it, is uh, pretty much gone. That's, again, my next point. Has the free world lost Hong Kong? What about world reaction to this? Well, we're not seeing a lot, and I think, you know, really it's uh, it's a calculation on the part of countries, including Canada, that Hong Kong has a population of 7 million, and uh, the People's Republic of China is a very powerful and influential country with a population of 1,500 million. And so, you know, if you do a pragmatic calculation, you're better off not standing up for freedom and democracy in Hong Kong or or uh, Canada's um, co-signing of the Sino-British Joint Declaration when it was launched with the UN. You know, even to today, Canada is still um, thinking about whether we want to extend uh, safe harbor to uh, persons in Hong Kong who are now subject to political um, persecution under this national security law, which Canada would regard as an illegal legislation because it violates the international treaty. But, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Champagne, our foreign minister, said they're considering it. Well, I mean, the national security law was implemented on July 1st of this year. We're now heading into November. Exactly how much thinking does our government have to do to determine whether or not we're going to stand by, you know, people in Hong Kong whose only crime is believing in democracy and the right to speak their minds out? So. It's a pretty pretty bad situation um, for Hong Kong, and I, I, I think that um, we really should be uh, thinking about our commitment to international institutions 
and whether or not you know Canada is fully supportive of the 300,000 Canadians currently in Hong Kong, or if we see them as somehow simply um, you know subject to communist Chinese domination because of their ethnicity. You know those those Canadians in Hong Kong are not dual citizens under the Chinese law. Anyone who holds a foreign passport is not um, a citizen of China anymore. But the Chinese government has been referring to them as Canadian passport holders. Uh, that's the Chinese ambassador in Ottawa said that, mm. not Canadians. And I think this is a, something that our government should be addressing very seriously to see if if Canadian citizenship really stands for everybody, regardless of ethnicity and wherever they are. Uh, another issue in regard to China, and, and I think we've talked about this with you before, we've certainly talked about it on the show uh, with people who have been harassed, and and, and again, focusing on the uh, the Canada-China Committee, which, which was, uh, I guess, looking at this sort of thing. Uh, but CSIS now warning uh, China's Operation Fox Hunt is targeting Canada's Chinese community. What does this mean? What is happening? Well, we've seen this before, um, you know, as long as 20 years ago, if anyone remembers the case of Lai Kangxing, a major smuggler who, um, you know, when the police were on his tail for massive um, bribery and corruption, and, you know, at one stage, apparently he was responsible for 18% of all of the oil going into China, and, you know, tax-free under his smuggling operation. Anyway... Uh, you know, at the time of his of his refugee hearing, um, the Chinese police apologized to the government of Canada for having sent a delegation of Chinese uh, security agents and Mr. Lai's um, brother to Vancouver to try and coerce Mr. Lai to return to China under some sort of plea bargain deal where he would, you know, they claimed he would meet with leniency. The thing is that those Chinese police entered Canada on um, false pretenses. They they claimed to be a business delegation when, in fact, you know, the, the letters of invitation they received from businesses were fakes. So it seems that there are a lot of agents of the Chinese regime operating with impunity in Canada, either under diplomatic cover or not, who are engaged in serious activities of, of coercion against um, persons of Chinese origin in our country, some of whom have relations in Hong Kong and the mainland who are being similarly threatened. And they're Chinese citizens in Canada, you know, specifically students and so on, people with Chinese passports who are also being subject to coercion and harassment to engage in espionage or other activities on behalf of the Chinese regime. And under our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, regardless of whether they're Canadian citizens or foreign citizens, everybody enjoys the protection of our charter and the failure of our of our RCMP to investigate these matters and address them is um, clearly a, a disgrace, a national disgrace, because you know we seem to pay a lot of attention when Canadian white MPs are subject to some minor harassment, but when we're talking about massive systematized harassment of um, persons of Chinese origin who speak out for democracy and human rights or you know want to expose the Chinese genocide against the Turkic Muslims or or are concerned about uh, what's happening in Hong Kong, they're subject to very bad harassment. We don't do anything. Um, CSIS has a website where they can register foreign influence harassment, but CSIS is not an agency that actually does anything beyond collect intelligence. So, you know, as we said before in this program, people who have been subject to this kind of intimidation and menace 
um, contact the RCMP. The RCMP refers them to the local police. Local police refers them back to the RCMP. Not a single agent of the Chinese regime who's been engaged in this activity has been subject to any kind of sanction whatsoever. And occasionally when we establish that some of the Chinese police are here operating under false pretenses, the only thing we do is deport them back to China. We've, we've not arrested or made accountable a single person for this kind of uh, disgraceful uh, behavior in our, in, that's in such a violation of you know, everything that's good about Canada. So that would answer the question as why as to why uh, Chinese Canadians loyal to Canada would not speak up. They're going their relatives back uh, home could feel the repercussions. Yeah, and I think that you know I think that there is uh, there are a lot of Chinese groups who support uh, you know who come out in support of the Chinese government, but these are minority of of our Chinese Canadians. Um, you know, the vast, vast majority of people of Chinese origin in our country, some of whom have been here for five, six generations, which is four generations longer than my family, my, both my parents were immigrants mm. to this country, are absolutely 100% loyal to the Canadian nation. And, you know, it's, it's uh, horrendous if, if uh, the Chinese regime gives the impression that, that persons here in Canada of Chinese origin are anything but loyal Canadians. Let's move on to the two Michaels. Obviously, the Prime Minister speaking out on this uh, this week as uh, the two Michaels have now been uh, incarcerated for over 700 days now. What's the significance of what the Prime Minister has said this week? Well, I think that, uh, you know, there might be some hope that Canada will start to uh, ally uh, under U.S. leadership with other like-minded countries to come up with a common uh, response to China and um, engage China in ways which will disincentivize that nation from engaging in gross violations of the international rules-based order in trade and diplomacy. And, you know, hostage diplomacy is not something that's been carried out against Canadians alone, but you have comparable situations with other nationals. So, you know, with the coming of Joe Biden as president, um, he has indicated very strongly his views that the Chinese president Xi Jinping is a thug. He, um, he wants to ally with other countries to counter um, Chinese um, violations of international law. And uh, he has identified what's going on against the Turkic Muslims in uh, northwestern China as uh, genocide. So, you know, I think that uh, the current Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has also wanted to get countries together to come up with a common approach. But because of, you know, our government's lack of confidence in the Trump presidency and their reliability and honesty, this hasn't come to pass. It could come to pass under Biden. And if that was to happen, I think the Chinese regime would recognize that holding favor and Kovrig is no longer going to serve their interests in furthering what they their agenda in China in Canada, and that could um, lead to their release. Um, right now, our government is doing absolutely nothing that uh, gives the Chinese any incentive to um, to do the right thing and release these completely innocent men from the brutal horror that they've sustained now for 702 days. How is China viewing the U.S. presidential election? Well, I think that, um, you know, in some ways, China liked working with Donald Trump. He was prepared to make side deals, you know, where the Chinese would promise to, 
that source all their certain agricultural commodities in the U.S., thereby leaving Canada and Brazil and so on high and dry. I think with uh, I think what the Chinese really are worried about is um, Mr. Biden being able to come up with an effective alliance to compel China to to play by the rules of fairness and reciprocity in global affairs or suffer um, considerable consequences. You know, the U.S. is 25% of the global economy, so it's not just a one-way street. The U.S. needs allies just as the allies need the leadership of the U.S., and I think China would start to see the writing on the wall if uh, we started to act in concert and and uh, retaliate against China's um, trade, you know, illegal trade embargoes and to uh, give Chinese officials consequences for being complicit in the genocide and and the situation in Hong Kong by seizing their assets here in Canada and barring them from entry into our country under the um, Justice for the Victims of Foreign Corrupt Officials Act, which is our Magnitsky list. There are a lot of things we could do. We've been reluctant to do them Canadian, bila- uh, you know, unilaterally for fear that China would, would uh, crack down hard on us economically. But if we have this institution led by Mr. Biden, everybody would be acting in concert and the Chinese wouldn't be able to to um, divide and conquer. So does that send, meaning the election of of, uh, of Joe Biden, once it's eventually finalized, um, does that send a mes- message that the allies are back, that uh, the world order is, is going to change again? You hope so. I mean, you know, it's too soon to say, but it appears that if Mr. Biden acts on the statements that he's made in his election campaign, that'll be the case. On the other hand, you know, if the Democrats decide to do basically uh, let's negotiate uh, deals and get the Chinese to come online on things like climate change and nuclear nonproliferation or North Korea or cooperation in, in global health, that uh, Biden might might uh, make concessions in these other areas of cyber espionage, harassment, trade and um, and uh, diplomacy uh, to gain those other benefits but you know I'm I'm hoping that mr. Biden will will resume uh, the US's leadership in a multilateral global order based on the principles of, of sovereignty fairness and reciprocity which you know are, are the best thing for a, a lesser power like Canada to survive in a world where they, where we've got two major superpowers um, con- conflicting over, over which one is going to dominate um, um, geopolitics in the years ahead. Do you think with uh, Biden taking over for Trump, that will change the Huawei CFO situation? We certainly remember what the president said way back when, uh, commenting on, on uh, her arrest and such. Does it change that case in any way? And one wonders if, you know, this would be part of some sort of bargaining that, China, that Biden would engage with with China if it's possible for somehow or other the presidency to direct the Department of Justice to drop those charges against the Huawei CFO, which would then render the extradition case moot and, and you know, the problem. How would America view that, though, if, if Biden throws in that towel? I, 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 I think that it's unlikely that, that there will be the political will to do that. And I'm, I would also be concerned about what signal that sends to China. Is it that they will say, well, that hostage diplomacy 
you know, doing what we did to Kovrigan's favor worked out for us. We we got what we wanted in the end, and Meng was released back to China before she went to the States, where she might have provided the U.S. with information about her company Huawei's relationship with security and, and intelligence services in exchange for a plea bargain. So, you know, I, I would rather that we get the Michaels back without having to... Um, to make uh, compromises on on Meng Wanzhou, who you know should be accountable for crime, any crimes of fraud that she may have committed. Charles Burton has been with us, senior fellow, Macdonald Laurier Institute, talking about Canada-China relations and will that change uh, with the new president in the United States? Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Great to speak with you. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, it's fascinating as, you know, and to have a pandemic in the U.S. election in the same year is, uh, boy, if, if we can survive through this, we'll do all right. But uh, it, it's been fascinating what's been happening uh, south of the border, not only on Election Day uh, just recently, but even prior to that. And I've often thought as we watch people uh, try to cope with the fatigue and the uh, exhaustion of dealing with the pandemic. It's almost been the same with the President of the United States in the sense that every single day, every single hour almost, uh, we hear uh, from the President of the United States on, on Twitter, and and it's, it's, it's every single day. It's nonstop. And when you think about it, prior to this, did you hear from politicians, before a pandemic, did you hear from politicians uh, every single day? And uh, that brings me to a fascinating uh, article, which is uh, in McLean's magazine, and it's entitled, Let's Dump Trump's Accomplices, Social Media and Cable News. They aren't gateways to serious news consumption. They're pathways to polarization and misinformation. Uh, we can choose to stop watching. I'm going to read you the first paragraph. Now that Donald Trump has been fired by enough American people, it's time to think about how to bin his accomplices, cable news, and social media. The Trump era has been exhausting, and the lion's share of that exhaustion stems from our grossly expanded information economy. What used to come to us in dollops of papers and broadcasts is now streamed nonstop across all hours of the day on too many platforms to count, but there can be too much of a good thing, a glass of water quenches uh, quenches your thirst a fire hose knocks you over and leaves you drenched it's time to turn off the tap and to talk more about this andrew mcdougall is with us uh, who penned the article is also the director at trafalgar strategy and former head of communications to prime minister stephen harper andrew thank you for the time i hope you're doing well yeah thank you for having me on all is well over here ish I hear you. I hear you. So fascinating piece. And I think a lot of people have been thinking this. What has been the response to this piece? Uh, is it enough for us to separate from this or is is the attraction just too great? I think, sadly, the, the attraction is too great. And, and that's the kind of evil genius of of this technology, whether it's platforms like Twitter, Facebook or YouTube is they just suck you in. And, and that's done with an algorithm that, that works on, on a very detailed knowledge of how the human brain works and serves you up what you want to hear. And it's hard to break that cycle. Do people realize how much social media and those two cable networks have driven this discussion? Um, and it wasn't that long ago that these media didn't. Yeah, no, exactly right. And and as I wrote, you know, we used to get very discrete bursts of information. You used to wake up to your paper in the morning or maybe in the evening, depending on where you lived, 
and you watch the the nightly news broadcast, and that was the kind of only time you got to look into what was going on. But what's changed now is that we've expanded the canvas uh, for information. So you had cable news that came around in the late 80s, early 90s, and gave us 24 hours a day of TV news. And then you had the Internet that gave us literally an unlimited canvas for information. And, and we've exhausted ourselves trying to read all of it. And, and unfortunately, when you d- did that as well, you, you took a bigger canvas, you let anybody paint on it. And it turns out that a lot of the anybodies that are painting it are idiots or malicious. And, and, and that's bad for, for, for our information economy. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. How can too much information be a bad thing? This is giving a voice to everyone, Andrew. Yeah, but not everyone is qualified to offer their opinion. And, and look, you know, these conversations were always happening. You know, we all know that that person either in our family or at work that would always come in on, on a Monday morning with some crackpot theory about something that had just happened. And you kind of laugh it off and say, haha, wasn't that weird? Now all those weirdos can find their fellow weirdos online and, 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 and collect together and, and bid each other up on the insanity scale and then unleash that information into the world. And, and you're down at the point, the pandemic's a great example, where, where not only do epidemiologists and public health experts have to struggle to communicate, uh, they have to do that against a wall of skepticism and, and uninformed commentary. And, and that's why I said too much of information is a good thing, right? And, and more to the point, we cannot process all the information. It's just not possible. We don't have the faculties to do it. And, and even seasoned journalists don't have the ability to do it when they monitor what comes across their Twitter feeds all day. It's just hard to get enough kind of verification and, and, and proof of what you're sharing uh, without doing your own reporting. And that's the thing about journalism. You're always meant to do your own work before you put it out there to share. Now we share first and think later, and, and that's bad. Again, and I agree with you 100%, but I'll play devil's advocate again. Does not everyone deserve a voice? Sure. It doesn't mean we have to pay attention to them uh, or or enable them. Uh, You know, and and, and this is the thing that that we we, we haven't, you know, we have rules and and, and kind of, you know, processes for for putting information out there in the world. It just, those rules and, and kind of conventions have never had to deal with the fire hose of information we have here now. You know, the role that the press, whether you agree with them or not, has played has been that kind of gatekeeper curator. And that's kept a lot of bad stuff and unverified stuff out of the public domain. Now it all just kind of blurts out there and we're asked to kind of adjudicate on it after the fact. And that's a bad way to do business. And look, you can have whatever opinion you want about stuff, but you can't have whatever fact you want out there on stuff. And I think Mm. the way the information economy is architected right now, it's very hard kind of separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to facts. And as you're seeing in these kind of recount cases in the states, what the Trump campaign is doing is taking anecdote and making it uh, widespread fraud. And, and, and this is where people just don't have the kind of wherewithal to, to kind of sift through that stuff. And, and, it, and then it leads to millions of people thinking, well, you know what, maybe, maybe somebody did steal this from the president, when there's absolutely no proof and if you look at the kind of dozens of court cases ongoing they're being thrown out left right and center for a reason we've certainly talked on the show uh even well before covid19 how the world has become so divisive either you're on this side or you're that side i've even talked to politicians about you know the successes in the middle i mean where is it where has the middle gone but have these networks or social media given voice to those extremes well it's two things yes they've given voice second part is they've clumped us together 
on on those sides of the divide and and more to the more importantly screened out the other side and that's the dangerous thing now we're all kind of in the bathwater and and or in the Kool-Aid sorry and, and drinking it and and you don't you know if you look at the states most of the congressional districts there are so safe that you never have to go against the contrary opinion to win. You just have to outbid your fellow contender for the nomination. And then when it comes to the election, you win in a walk. It's very rare that we have to have a bipartisan conversation. And this is the thing I think people are waking up to a bit more now that the U.S. election is over, is that there are, are two Americas. and It's not geographic, uh, although it is in a sense. It's more information. Where do you get your information? Do you get it from reputable news outlets? Or do you get it from online information factories that may or may not be true or or certainly more aggressive in their interpretation of what they see? And so we're coming to a situation where people can't agree on on what's happened. You know, there are millions of people out there that think that the Democrats run a secret sex child, like child abuse operation out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, except now you can. And not only that, you can get a lot of people to believe it. And the rest of us are running around going, no, really, Democrats don't molest children. And you've already lost the argument if you have to refute such a crazy argument. It's a very tough situation we're in. Uh, you brought up a very valid point in in regard to facts and fact checking and, you know, spinning a narrative. And then if you say it uh, uh, enough times and loud enough, people will uh, will will certainly uh, uh, eventually uh, just follow it and, and take it as fact. Have we forgotten how to agree to disagree? Yeah, we have. Absolutely. And and I think the one thing we've forgotten a bit more than that is how to criticize our own side. Hmm. Uh, you know, w- what's going to help get us out of this is if we keep each other honest in our own tribes. And that's not what you're seeing in the States now. You're seeing very few Republicans that are standing up um, uh, to the president, although there, I think it was the Attorney General of Montana today who came out with quite a strong statement saying, come on, Mr. President, it's time to accept that you've lost. We're not doing that. Because that's weakness. And if you're weak to your tribe, you get cast out of your tribe. And that's what the kind of GOP are struggling with in the States, how, how to stand up for what's right and not be excommunicated, if not by Trump, by the kind of rabid right-wing information economy that operates. And, and that's very hard. And that gives us no room to compromise. And look, I did this for seven years of my life, spinning our version of the truth and, and kind of fighting your corner. And it has absolutely gotten harder uh, to be reasonable. Social media does not reward a reasonable statement of fact. It rewards extreme interpretations, a lot of emotion, and a lot of fire. And, and that's a bad place. You know, we're emotional creatures by, by design, and, and we don't need to indulge that. We need to temper it. And, and social media does not temper it. It fires us up. And, you know, you remember back to the beginning days of the Trump administration and even the campaign, the first campaign, everything was fake, labeling everything as fake, 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 fake news, fake institutions, don't believe in in things that we have trusted for years. Uh, how long is it going to take to build back that faith and, and for people to actually, as you say, sift through it all and, and, and realize what is fact and what is fiction? Well, well, I wish I knew, but I think it's going to be hard as long as the Facebooks, Twitters, and YouTubes of this world uh, refuse to kind of get involved and, and, and accept some responsibility for this. And, and I think, you know, what you're seeing here is as predictable in the States. Uh, uh, you know, anybody could have told you this is exactly why the president has spent so long chipping away at the credibility of, of the institutions that are meant to keep him in check. And that includes the press. And this isn't to say the press 
is perfect. They are not. The press has, as too often, kind of gotten up their own backsides and, and not done the job they're supposed to do, of holding people to account evenly on both sides. And this is Trump's kind of genius. He takes that kernel of truth and explodes yeah. it into a popcorn bowl of fiction. And, and it leaves some reasonable people going, well, you know, he might have a point there. You know, whether it's on things like NATO, yeah, you know, the other Western countries have not, including Canada, haven't been stumping up the money they need to. It shouldn't be the United States footing the bill. Yes, the press gets some things wrong, but they get most things right. And the system's built for them to fact check and put the quality behind that. But he takes every time, every failure, and makes an example uh, of standard practice when it's not. So that's the challenge we have. We have to call each other out on our own sides. We have to reduce the amount of information we get from from questionable sources. And, and we have to kind of reinvest in quality and, and you know, get out there, support your local radio stations, you know, support your local newspapers, your local broadcasts. That's, that's what we need to do. We need some people with, with a bit of discernment to kind of look through all of the information we're getting and serve us up what we need to know without fear or favor. Is that tide changing? Have we learned anything from the U.S. presidency? Well, you'd I, I, like to think so, but but I, I don't think we have. I, I think, you know, politics, the imperative is always so short term. What do I do next to keep the job I have or to get the job I want? It's not a long term game anymore. And if you're a Republican, for example, down in the States now, you might accept that Trump is going. But his influence on either the mechanics of the party or, more importantly, the information economy that surrounds the Republican setup in the states won't lessen. And it will take a brave, you know, ask Mitt Romney or any one of the, the few Republicans that put their head above the parapet and make a criticism. The, the condemnation, the complete, utter and total condemnation from Fox News on down is withering. And it would take, you know, a miracle to survive that. And, and politicians get that. So while they might not be craven to Trump personally, they, they understand that they have to, they have to duck their head and, and hope to get by until things change. And if they don't act soon, though, I don't think they're going to be able to change the system uh, that they operate in now. Are we realizing, though, the division is a very much a short-term strategy? I mean, Donald Trump came into the presidency, and from day one, it was separating allies, left from right, this from that. And at the end of the day, I thought, you know, this is common sense. You can't win an election by dividing people. So uh, are people realizing that that brouhaha, that filibuster, that, that, uh, that loud brash, a divisive strategy only works for a short period of time. Sooner or later, you have to unite to win. Well, you'd think so. But look at the results in the election. A, Trump bumped his vote up by close to 10 million votes. And granted, mm -hmm. it's not enough compared to Biden. Uh, but then the Republicans down ballot uh, won seats in the House, which wasn't expected. They they looked to have held on to control of the Senate, which wasn't expected. So so far from a repudiation of that program of, of diversity it was more a repudiation of the man at the top of it. And so I think enough Americans looked at the president and said, I'm a bit tired of his nonsense, but I'm not buying what the other guys are selling. And, and to answer your question a bit more directly, you know, you know I, I think, you know, if I can answer that question directly, I, I think, I think that thing of compromise, you know, Biden will, will test that because he'll have to compromise to get anything through. We'll see if he's rewarded for it. Um, but right now, there aren't too many rewards there. And I think politics is fueled mostly on negative partisanship. So not affinity for my side, but hatred for the other side. And that's what did Hillary Clinton in. It wasn't that 
Hmm. People were enamored with Trump. They were just very hateful of her. Every Republican didn't want her to win, and a lot enough Democrats didn't want her to win either. And I think that's what you saw in the U.S. election that we've just had, is a lot of people saying, look, you might hate my guy, but I hate your guy more, and I'm going to go vote on that basis. Yeah. Have you were talking about uh, earlier? We're talking about the cable news networks and CNN and Fox News. I noticed this election coverage uh, compared to the 2016 election. CNN changed its tone. I remember the last election. I think CNN was the absolute last network to declare Donald Trump the winner, even after the Canadian networks had already done so. This time out, they weren't going to declare. Uh, they weren't going to say that Biden was a winner until everything uh, that they could bring, at least at that point, up to date and, and use those results. They certainly didn't want to project anything that wasn't there. Did they change their did they change their outlook? Did they change their plan this time? I, I think a lot of outlets did. And I think, you know, it's quite, you know, had they just counted the ballots the way they should have counted the ballots in the states? So most states counted yeah. the mail-in ballots ahead of Election Day and had the tallies ready for Election Day. Had Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada done that, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We would be waking up on a Wednesday morning going, well, that was a pretty big victory for Joe Biden. Look at that. Um, so I think, you know, yes, I think Trump has the, the networks a bit snake bitten in, in that they don't want to kind of give him fuel for his narrative of fake news. But they've just got to realize that everything they do is fake news in his eyes. Anything that doesn't genuflect to him is an insult to him. And and that that's where you see, you know, to your point about the tone, CNN was also a lot more opinionated and strident in their view of, of what was going on. And they had more yeah. people up there, supposedly straight news journalists like Anderson Cooper, giving their opinion, you know, yeah. saying the president looked like an obese turtle on his back. Like, that's yeah, not that, journalism, not where yeah. I come from. That's yeah. an opinion. And, yeah. and people see journalists, supposedly straight news journalists, spouting opinion. They start to wonder if maybe the president isn't right. And, and this is all some sort of racket where they just hate him. So where do you think this is going? Do you think we, you know, I've asked many poli size, many pundits this. Will we, will the world see more Donald Trumps or will the pendulum swing back to a more traditional type of, of politician? Or because this sort of politician gains so much traction, we're going to see a milder version of Donald Trump? Well, you know, I, I think that this is to assume that Trump was the originator of, of, of a lot of this. You know, here in mm. the UK, we have, we have a man named Nigel Farage who kind of pioneered the one-man media ban party. Uh, or you look in the Philippines and, and Duterte, uh, you know, rode Facebook to victory by, by being more Trump than Trump. And then you have Bolsonaro down in Brazil. So, so I think we're a long way from, from, from making a call on whether this kind of thing sells. And I think, again... It will be related to how those societies and countries consume their information. You know, look, here in Canada, we have a very quiet and cozy media establishment, a few networks, a few papers that can reach across the country. You know, just look at the reaction to, to outlets like Rebel News, Rebel Media, and, and the kind of backlash that that's provoked in Canada. You can see that the tapestry that we're working from is very different from the States, which has a very different kind of view of itself and its role in the world. So I don't think it's easy to say, with Trump out of the way or, or with Trump here, things will be X or Y. I think, I think every country is different. And I think we, more than anything, need to be mindful of how we're spreading information around. Because if you look at Facebook, that's 2.3 billion people around the world. 
and a lot of them, that's their primary source of news. That's more power than any media organization has ever had in history. Uh, and yet they don't see themselves as a media organization. They don't want to get involved in, in questions of quality or, 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 you know, adjudicating fact from fiction. They ha- if, they, if they get to that conversation, it's because they've been dragged there by the Senate. So I think, you know, governments around the world are going to have a hard look at what they can do for some of these bigger tech companies and social media companies to say, look, these are your rights and responsibilities. If you want to keep them, this is what we expect from you. And, and that will be a very tricky conversation. But I think that's where we're going to go. We're going to get governments poking their noses in, in places like, like the breaking up of, of these giant tech companies that control so much information. Andrew McDougall is a director at Trafalgar Strategy and former head of communications for Prime Minister Stephen Harper is speaking to us from the UK. In McLean's the latest article, Let's Dump Trump's Accomplices, Social Media and Cable News by Andrew McDougall. Andrew, fascinating discussions. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me on. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.